Welcome to HubSpot's Unconventional Business Podcast. I'm your host, James Gilbert. The best companies are the ones that make it incredibly easy and delightful to do business with. It's seamless, frictionless, intuitive. It's not just a better experience, they're actually disrupting our very notion of what consumers should be able to expect from companies. You see, Aussies and Kiwis are a hard bunch to please. We have some of the highest expectations in the world, and luckily for us, our homegrown businesses know this. This season, on HubSpot's Unconventional Business, you'll be meeting some of our best homegrown brands as they share how they're growing and winning by disrupting the customer experience. Let's meet today's guest. Welcome back to Unconventional Business. I'm your host, James Gilbert. With us today, we have a really interesting Australian company that's disrupting the way you're receiving parcels, which at this time due to COVID, you're probably receiving a lot of. I have Eva Ross, the Chief Marketing Officer and Chief Customer Officer from Sendor. Hey, Eva, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So for people that don't know about Sendal, how would you describe it to them? Uh, so Sendal is a 100% carbon neutral parcel delivery company that's specifically designed for small businesses. Um, and, and our mission, I suppose, is important to include is shipping that's good for the world. And when we think about good, we think about good in terms of carbon neutral, and we think about being good for small business and for competition. One of the things as I was learning about Sendal, I was... Not, I've found it hard to understand how it would come to exist. You know, when I think about shipping and the infrastructure that's required to actually pull that off, you, you think it can only be something like an Australia post. Like where did you see or where did Sendal see the opportunity that it was like, no, this is actually broken and here's how we can fix it for customers? I think that's a great point, James, because... For a lot of people, parcel delivery is completely invisible, right? You order something online, it arrives. Um, you don't think too much about all of the things and all of the journey that your parcel goes on in between. Uh, and you certainly don't if everything goes right. Um, but the, the origin story is quite interesting. So our founder, James Chin Moody, uh, was on sabbatical with his wife in France and was thinking about some of the ways that he might want to do something a little bit different while he was the primary carer. Um, and at the time, they had a lot of baby clothes, uh, a lot of toys that they were getting rid of as the boys were getting older. And they thought about how they could share those um, with people who maybe weren't in their direct neighborhood, but were maybe a little bit further away. And so they built a platform called ToShare, uh, within which you could uh, really list any item at all. Uh, and the, the difference between, say, a traditional eBay, where you're paying for the good, was that you were actually paying for the shipping and the good was free. So they'd really sort of broken that model. Uh, and after a while, they noticed that a lot of the goods that were appearing on the platform were dedicated for a specific person. So these headphones are for James. Uh, and so then James would come and take them off the market and have them shipping. And they realized that they were sort of being hacked for the great shipping service. Uh, and as more and more customers yeah, came across from e-commerce platforms, they realized what they'd actually designed was a shipping service for e-commerce. How was their shipping service different? Was was it just using existing shipping services or he had uh, figured out his own way of doing that? Or how did that work? Why was it better? Well, it's interesting when you think about giving away something for free, the competition is really the garbage bin. And so mm -hmm. you've got to make it super easy and you've got to make it super affordable. So in terms of ease, 
uh, having the item picked up from you and picked up from your door was something that was going to be really competitive. And the other one was just simplicity. I think we've all had the experience of going to the post office and being a little bit shocked once we get to the front counter as to what the real price is. Uh, so mm-hmm. the, the idea was to create kind of complete simplicity and uh, a kind of a known entity in terms of what the price was going to be. Uh, and when they started looking at Australia Post, they noticed, hey, if you want to send this you know, 10 kilo package to Perth, you know, it could cost you up to $100. Um, and, and that just didn't seem right. And that sort of led to a real exercise of identifying all of the pain points that existed in traditional shipping and trying to break all of those down. So some of the things were, you've, if you're running a small business, you don't have time to spend your lunchtime lining up at the post office. Uh, if you're mm. listing, um, if you want to list, say, free shipping, you want to be very sure uh, about what those rates are. And so therefore, creating flat rate shipping, where you can sort of set those expectations really early on, was super important. Uh, and I think as we went through the process, we saw, you know, Australia posted something like nearly 6,000 different prices for sending a single item to a single destination. Uh, and for someone running a small business, that's a, a complicated pricing table to be looking through. So they really wanted to simplify that. And I think at this point, we have three different price plans and six different uh, pricing sizes. So really 18 in total in comparison. That's pretty fascinating. I definitely, as a small business owner, would prefer going through three prices instead of 6,000. And I think it taps into actually a pretty interesting dynamic where if you are a small business owner, you really are focused on what the business is, not as much the processes around it. And I think companies that overcomplicate the need for your processes to adapt to their pricing model really uh, struggle to get what it is that these people are trying to do. So I, that makes a lot of sense. Why, if you if you have such an opportunity to make the service better in terms of delivery, in terms of simplicity of pricing, what's the importance of the B Corp element? What, why the carbon neutral? Why being certified as a B Corp? Why is that important to Sendall and possibly your customers? Yeah, I mean, I think coming from these origins of TwoShare, where we were really talking about a circular economy solution, taking that concept and those principles through into Sendall was just so important. Uh, and I think we really think about, I mean, to be honest with you, our objective is to have every parcel be sent carbon neutrally, to really look at the logistics industry and say, hey, at the moment, this contributes something like 10% of emissions globally. Uh, and what can we do about that? And really sort of thinking about that change in the long term. Uh, I think there was there was an investor very early on who was trying to encourage Sendal not uh, to become a B Corp because they thought it might become a distraction. And they were offering a million dollars investment and we turned it down. And I think to me, that was very symbolic of how important to us, uh, not only to look at kind of our impact now, but what that will be in the future. Uh, And so I think we've been looking at really uh, trying to optimize all of our operations for sustainability and also all of the other parts of being a B Corp. So considering stakeholders such as your partners, uh, customers and their customers, as well as the environment, and of course, as well as your investors. And I think if you start to set your goals and align what you're doing internally as a company with those objectives, you get a very different result. How does it resonate with your customers? Is it is it a reason that they come to Sendal or um, is it more 
and and nice to have in their mind or a little bit of both it depends on the customer i think we're really seeing a change and a shift in that actually particularly since you know the global pandemic and us seeing the sort of Mm. impacts that humans do have on the environment and the things going on around us Uh, but i suppose for us there are customers for whom they know their customers care um, and so it's simply a pass on benefit and there were other others for whom they've made really careful, ethical and organic choices about their supply chain, about the materials that they're using, uh, about the packaging that they're using. Uh, And then to be faced with this shipping that may have such an impact, for them it's so wonderful to be able to find a solution uh, that is 100% carbon neutral. And also we've been selling packaging that's compostable and home compostable, uh, so you can literally put it in your own worm garden. Uh, and to have solutions like that that are available and affordable uh, has been great for for that sector of small businesses. It's, it's often a, a tricky balance to to be able to get it to be not only um, like a something that you're willing to do, but to be able to get the price point to a place where it's easy enough for customers to do that. You know, like I've, I find when we chat to a lot of businesses trying to achieve similar goals. Often that price point is where it's tricky, that if you want to be a B Corp, if you want to make it compostable, if you want to have like extra services on top of this, but at a lower price, uh, it's a pretty delicate balance to be able to achieve that. Is that something that as you've grown in scale has become more and more achievable or you've found ways to actually have that work from the start? Yeah, it's true. I think we've always tried to be cheaper and greener. I think in our experience... Uh, people associate green or organic with more expensive. Uh, And so often it is that we're leading with price point and then surprising and delighting customers with the fact that we're also carbon neutral. But I think in the long term, if you make these investments and, you know, for example, you're considering energy savings or you're considering using solar, uh, over time, a lot of those costs will actually come down. You make an early investment, say, in solar, and then those rewards pay themselves back and, and pay it forward you know, within something like 10 years. So I think it's really mm. worth considering the long-term impacts of making those decisions. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I really like your point around, you know, where you're an ambitious and fast-growing company, getting this stuff right now is only going to have more and more impact in the right way versus not doing it now is going to mean it's going to be a harder and harder decision to make in the future. So I, I think like getting that foundation right while you're still growing but still early in your growth journey is going to really help your impact when you get to the scale that you want uh be the impact that you want which is which is super important 100%. yeah having it kind of on the agenda early means you see the rewards later on i mean uh we only saw that uh ha- become the truth for us last year we did a campaign uh, which was a lot of fun uh, where we used uh, the, the typical iconography that you see of Australiana and Australian animals uh, and did a campaign around putting on a sticker uh, showing that animal, in some cases wearing a gas mask to kind of show the, the carbon neutral aspects of Sendor and to put those on a parcel uh, in a way to challenge Australia Post to join us uh, in our efforts to become carbon neutral. And they yep. did. I mean, who'd have thought? It was just tremendous to see oh, wow. Australia, po- Australia Post follow suit uh, and join us, certainly with some of the um, shipments that they do, uh, to yep. have them also be carbon neutral. 
And just to see the market and the industry change in that direction uh, for us is, is just a huge win and a huge win for the environment, of course. Absolutely. I think you must have an interesting relationship with Australia Post where I feel like 10 years ago, if you wanted to send a parcel, there was either very expensive courier services or Australia Post and there was nothing else really. And and you've kind of emerged as this um, alternative to Australia Post for a lot of people. Like how was that relationship? It sounds like you're pushing them in in the right direction in terms of um, following suit with a lot of these like B Corp type initiatives. Uh, But I'm sure it hasn't always been a um, complimentary response that you're seeing from them. Is it, has it sometimes been quite contentious or what's that looked like over time? I mean, ultimately competition is very healthy, right? And I think Mm -hmm. for us, it's just about the fact that these small businesses are heavily underserved. As you say, if they're, if they're only doing a couple of shipments, they either have the option of going down to the post office and lining up and paying parcel post rates or you know, really trying to meet courier requirements of having a minimum volume to be able to ship. And there's not a lot in between. So I think we just saw a real gap in that market where those guys were being underserved and really unable to compete with the big guys and unable to compete uh, on a level playing field with some of the big folks out there. Uh, And I think we just saw that as an opportunity to help and also to really kind of foster what is the Australian backbone of of small businesses. And, uh, And for me, it's a lot about allowing people to live out those dreams, right? People have Mm. have gone from having uh, a dress studio in their garage and these days they've gone online, they're shipping all over the country and sometimes all over the world. Uh, And so to be able to facilitate that, uh, you know, particularly as a a CCO is is so wonderful. Yeah, it feels like we're in a very interesting time. I was listening to the COO of Shopify talk about during covid how he's actually seen a lot of businesses really flourish because e-commerce has obviously become, yeah, I think it's 10 years of growth in the last few months. And there's a lot of people who, like you say, are just running a small business, but they're running it online. And so they can actually ship anywhere and they can have a bigger uh, reach than they previously thought was possible through access to platforms like Shopify that enable them to to sell online pretty easily and then uh, platforms like yourself that enable them to actually send the goods pretty easily. Have you seen that? You must have pretty fascinating insights. I know you've done some research into small business during this time, but it feels like some would actually be thriving. Oh, completely. I think there was a day in March when 50% of our senders were new senders. So i.e. they were all very new to e-commerce. And I thought that was an insane trend. You know, you saw all of these people suddenly starting a side hustle. Uh, Maybe something had changed in their own job situation or they were looking for a new stream of income uh, and they were suddenly sending online. So that in itself was fascinating. And yeah, I think as as Shopify have been talking about quite a lot, um, we've advanced 10 years in, you know, a number of weeks so sort of decades in weeks. And I think that's so interesting in terms of the opportunities that that creates. So we heard from a lot of customers who, you know, uh, there was a guy who was selling gin. He was mostly doing that locally in Sydney. And then he started producing hand sanitizer and suddenly had this huge Australian audience and was immediately able to Mm -hmm. deliver to all of them across the country sort of overnight. And uh, it's, it's just fascinating seeing all of those trends. 
I think the Melbourne lockdown was certainly very interesting for us as well. I think the the first Monday we're up 2.65x on the number of shipments that were going uh, into Melbourne and into Victoria. Uh, A lot of that, I'm sure, was uh, concerned folks sending care packages and looking after family members, but also just that really change, really big change for Australia to suddenly go online uh, and start shipping everything. So it will be interesting to see what we see kind of longer term, uh, and particularly as we come into peak for Christmas. Um, I wonder if that's a behavior that's really shifted for the long term or or if it's something that uh, sort of the pandemic and this lockdown has uh, has driven increased demand for. Yeah, I'm very curious to watch that, whether it's like it's going to cause a permanent behavior change or when we can hopefully go back to life as it was, people will go back to life as it was in in all um, senses. I'm sure it'll probably be somewhere in the middle once somebody... I know myself, I actually... And weirdly had not done a lot of e-commerce purchases and then was forced to in some various lockdown scenarios. And the convenience is is actually uh, ridiculous sometimes, just how good it is and, and how much easier it makes life. And I can imagine uh, people where they are in a pinch, where they need the convenience and now they've experienced just how good it is it, it feels like you'd be mad to turn back in in those scenarios. Yeah, completely. It's like any threshold you can't get past, right? Suddenly we're all forced to shop online and then we realize how easy it is. Well, and equally, yeah. um, people are, are forced to test out that hobby as a real business and, and see what it becomes. And I think, I mean, I just love the crea- creativity of all of that and how we kind of see these real risk takers and explorers really trying things out. Um, I think it's been fascinating. Um, But you asked a little bit before around kind of attitude and and hopes. Um, We interviewed a lot of our customers kind of midway through the year to see how they were feeling about the second half of 2020. And 85% of our customers said that they were optimistic about the future. So I think uh, a lot of people are on on the belief uh, that this is something we'll see continue. Uh, And and I only hope so. I'm sure that has created... um a lot of stress internal like one of the double-edged swords about growth as a business is it's great to get such extreme growth but that often puts a lot of pressure on the business being able to deliver on its promise to customers how has that been for sender you know when you're getting to nearly 3x the volume of orders that's probably going to put a lot of stress on your systems and processes and people like can you talk through what that's been like and how as a company you've managed that oh it certainly did early on i think also we we didn't know how long it was going to last right so is it is it sort of temporary stuff or is it something that you're going to have to hire for the long term for um i think from from a support standpoint uh, we've certainly ramped up the size of our team in Manila and also the access to tools. And uh, we've also probably progressed some of the ideas around automation and self-serving tools for the customer a little bit faster than we'd originally imagined, which has been, well, which has really been good for the customer because they're able to own their own destiny when it comes to uh, parcel tracking and changes and those sorts of things. Um, I think because Sendal works using a partner network actually being able to increase volume and increase the volumes that were going through those different networks was probably easier for us than it has been for other folks in the industry because it simply meant that we had to sort of turn on those additional carriers 
uh, and access their networks and their delivery vehicles and their uh, depots through the process. So probably on that side, uh, things have been good. But things have been difficult on the international front, you know, flight delays, uh, the number of flights that are available uh, and kind of, you know, the costs of doing that, uh, I think, have been tough. And, but I think they've been tough for everybody. Um, but I think it's also brought about a really interesting change where people know they can't rely on international deliveries quite so much. And so mm. they're looking for local goods and Australian goods to replace them. And I think that they're, they're, in doing that, they're finding brands that they love and finding new brands that they love. And that's been a yeah. really good trend to see. I've noticed that as well. You talk to a lot of people and I think crises like this are interesting in how they change people's perspectives. And one of the things has been you know, trying to support those around you. And I've spoken to a lot of people that are like preferring to buy from local businesses because they know they might be hurting or from Australian uh, businesses to support the Australian economy. As a, And even if it's more expensive, they're happy to do that as their way of voting for support, I guess. Um, it's it's interesting. You're hearing it a lot. And I think it's it's both. It's by virtue of, well, I don't have a choice, like we're not going to get international shipments. But then there is that more altruistic perspective of, no, I'm choosing to vote with my wallet that I'm going to be supporting local small business, lo- local Australian businesses. Um, it, yeah, again, it'll be fascinating to see if that uh, stays. I, f- I feel like it will. I, what's your view? Do you think it will or it's just... A temporary thing. I think I think it absolutely will. The overwhelmingly the feedback from our customers was that they are sourcing things locally more so because uh, of concerns around supply chain and therefore with opening those things up they're able to then produce different ranging uh, and I think that then creates consumer choice for for a lot of customers. I think you know the fact that we had the first P2 mask developed in Australia that was able uh, that was being shipped across Australia uh, from here, you know, suddenly meets a real, really big demand uh, in no time at all, uh, and, with, and with no concerns around risks on delays and that sort of thing. Um, I hope that people are encouraged by the amount of variety they can find here at home. Uh, and as as we said, we're we're seeing a real interest in not only local businesses but businesses across Australia, things that are Australian made. Uh, and I see, I think we'll see growth in both of those categories. You also launched into the US in the last uh, like six to nine months. And I feel like that in and of itself would have been a probably Herculean task inside Sendal. That combined with COVID uh, must have been pretty tricky to navigate. What's what's the experience been like with your push into the United States? Oh, it's it's been fascinating. And uh, as you say, I don't think we've had a normal month. So we, we launched in November, which of course is Black Friday. Uh, Black Friday now has small business fo- uh, Saturday following it and of course Cyber Monday. So it's, you know, it's become this oh, wow. almost two week period at this point over in the States. So we launched in, in the November with that. Uh, then we sort of saw peak period in Christmas, uh, then a little bit of a downturn in, in January, but then straight into COVID and kind of um, the reacceleration of the business through that. So, uh, as I'm trying to model things, we don't really know what a normal month looks like. So it's been it's yeah. been really fascinating. Um, yeah. But look, uh, the the, the go to market strategy for for America was uh, super interesting. We we did some work initially to have a look at all of the states that had mandatory composting, almost as a, a proxy oh, for which markets are going to be interested in the fact that we're 100% carbon neutral, and of course. 
who's going to be interested in the fact that we've got home compostable packaging? Uh, I spoke mm. to a lot of customers about, you know, the number of uh, cardboard boxes that are filling up back alleys and how um, more and more packaging decisions are becoming part of the purchase process earlier on than they ever used to be. Um, so we had a look sort of in those cities at, at who the creators and makers were, uh, had a look at really digging into the creative set uh, and and who was going to be interested in this sort of area. We see a huge propensity for makers and designers and uh, micro-entrepreneurs on Sendal in Australia, and we thought we'd see the same pattern uh, over in the States. And one of our first hires was Jen McGoffner, who herself used to run a small business, and not only did she know kind of operationally what that meant, but she also was heavily involved in a lot of small business communities and could get feedback really quickly. Uh, so mm. for us, it was key to kind of find who are those first 100 customers uh, let's talk to them a lot and understand what the true sort of bespoke solution for their needs will be uh, in a name to to get to product market fit. Um, and, and that whole process was really interesting. Uh, HubSpot, of course, was uh, very useful to us. We localized the site within a matter of weeks uh, and brought on a great copywriter who not only localized the content, but used all of the, the local vernacular I think it's so mm -hmm. important to have boots on the ground for, for that sort of thing and really told the Sendal story in a way that was easily understood um, by the US audience. We, we learned yep. that you can't use the word post, you need to use the word mail. <laughs> we, we learned ah, that uh, a satchel is called a mailer uh, and you know various other versions of, of how to use the language. Uh, and then from there, we've really gone deep on that idea of what is product market fit? How do you measure it? Uh, I think you may have heard of sort of the studies where you uh, ask people how disappointed they would be if they could no longer use Sandal uh, mm -hmm. and, and sort of various other measures to understand organic growth and impact. Uh, and yeah, so it's been a wild ride, as you said, doing both of that while going uh, through COVID has been interesting, but uh, the, the team have been just thriving, really. Uh, yeah, and, and I think we get a lot of energy from the small businesses that are, are growing in that process. Have there been any big surprises in terms of how businesses work with Sendal in the United States versus in Australia, or is it is it much the same? What's that experience been like? I think the biggest surprise has been the sophistication of that customer, um, and you know you get the best feedback from your customers. There's uh, a guy mm -hmm. who runs a blog called the Seller Center. And he, within weeks of us launching, had written a huge review uh, on all of the things that he loved about Sendal and all of the feedback. Uh, and then he's sort of become our, our compass on uh, what we're doing well and we're not doing what we're doing not so well. Um, so we followed up with him and keep taking on feedback. He's sort of become part of our focus group since then. So I think, oh, if cool. anything, it's A, just, you know, the, the sophistication of folks um, how much they know about whatever else is going on in the market and who's new. Uh, and also um, great feedback. I think um, the United States has had a huge customer service industry for a very long time. Uh, mm -hmm. And so you get very quick uh, and high quality feedback really, really early on. And making sure you're listening to that and taking it on board has been super important for us to grow. Yeah, I could imagine actually that would be a cultural difference that would uh, be interesting where you'd be getting more feedback that would actually help you refine your approach. Whereas in Australia, maybe we 
wouldn't give as much feedback. We'd be like, oh, whatever, it'll be fine. Where they might be like, no, no, this is how it will be fine for me. And as an owner, that's the feedback you really crave because you you can't improve what you don't know. And so, um, yeah, that must be somewhat a refreshing cultural difference in some ways. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I've loved the Australian culture of she'll be right, but she'll be right doesn't tell you a whole lot about how you're going to improve and make changes and make things better. Uh, it's yeah. kind of just a satisfaction with, with what, what is. Um, but I think that can stagnate very quickly. And what you want to be doing is adapting and changing and moving things forward. So we've really appreciated yeah. those feedback channels. Uh, and I think we're probably perhaps more reliant on some of those community forums in the States as a result. And they've you know, provided really high quality feedback to our UX and design team and product teams as well. And tell me about your role. So it's chief marketing officer and chief customer officer. Feels like that would own the entire customer journey. And this is the trend that we're seeing a lot more of. Can you talk about like what that actually looks like at Sendle and and why you think that trend is is really taking off? Yeah, totally. Uh, so I used to be the, the chief marketing officer. Uh, and for, for that role, I suppose we were very focused on top of the funnel. So really acquisition, looking at who key partners were going to be, uh, how we ensure that from acquisition, there's a really great onboarding experience and that leads into activation. But that's probably where it sort of ended. And I think bringing on the whole customer journey, and we actually now have what's called a customer journey optimization team, is really bringing the rest of the, the funnel really into focus with a particular uh, eye on product. So what happens once you've acquired that customer and they've started sending and then they've started sending regularly, what are the potential reasons that they might churn? Uh, is there anything you can do about that? And at what stage you can do that? Uh, where you bring in sort of better moments to surprise and delight your customer uh, and to retain them and then how you really uh, create an evangelist out of that customer and, and have them you know, singing verses for you. So it's really been that focused on on the product side of things. And then just creating a much better uh, feedback loop with the support team who are, you know, hearing this day in and day out uh, and ensuring that's injected back into the, the product team who are really trying to develop uh, and delight for it. For me, it's also a little bit about, you know, creating some fun. Um, I think uh, I worked at Airbnb for a while and they built this lovely thing where you'd hear uh, a certain chime on the app when somebody uh, booked your property. Uh, and then that sort of reinforcement of that happy sound is so lovely. Uh, so I guess we're thinking about some of the ways that we could do those sorts of things, uh, either to thank our, our drivers uh, or to be happy that, you know, the parcel has arrived uh, and really just bring a little bit more joy into the product. I think it's those things that uh, are much harder to measure, but often make uh, the experience and the product experience uh, that little bit more exciting. When I chat to most chief customer officers who also are responsible for marketing um it's interesting that this role hadn't existed earlier because it seems so obvious that actually your customer feedback ensuring that that has a good way of getting into all your marketing initiatives is going to help you grow better as a business because then you can really be focused on where customers are seeing value and where you need to improve and that's going to to your point help you with acquiring more customers and making them realize value sooner um 
it's interesting. I think pretty much every company is is going that way. And how does that look on a technology side? Like what kind of tools help you with that? I think a lot of people listening will be running businesses and while they understand it at a theoretical level that that you know having somebody responsible for the full customer experience uh makes sense sometimes they're not sure how to operationalize that like what does that look like how do you what kind of tools do you use to do it how do they work with each other so i think first of all you need a team who's going to be dedicated to data and analytics uh, and you need a team who's actually going to implement it all so it's all very well having the tools but you need to make sure you've got folks who are almost obsessively looking at all of that data and all of the articulations of it to make sure it's actually working. But there are ways that you can test uh, a little bit more affordably as well. You can use Optimizely, for example, Mm -hmm. and A-B test your homepage or A-B test really important pages uh, just to understand what making small tweaks uh, can can actually have a a huge effect. Um, So we've been using Optimizely we also, we tried uh, Amplitude and a few other A-B testing tools. Uh, now we're having a look at SmartLook. Uh, and so we've tried a few different uh, options and uh, and at the moment we're quite happy with SmartLook. Uh, and then, so so that's kind of on the, the product analytics side. We're also, you know, really getting a little more deeply into things with Hotjar and watching how people behave on specific pages and having kind of deeper recordings of those things and really learning from what those experiences are. Uh, and of course, you know, you need the qualitative stuff as well. Just speaking mm-hmm. to customers who've really thrived in your environment and also understanding, you know, from MPS studies where people aren't doing so well and really kind of taking all of that down. Um, but I think it's worth heavily investing in tracking uh, and optimizing before you go and build something bigger. Having so much data can can lead you in all sorts of direc- directions. And I think you want to be really sure about what the insights you're taking away from those moments are uh, before you yep. go and build for them. Yeah, it's interesting. I listened to a CMO who worked at multiple high growth companies and somebody asked him, who would be your first few hires if you were doing it again? And he was saying that it would be actually operations people to help set the right foundation of uh, technology and capturing information and interpreting information in a way that is scalable as they as the organization grows and it's actually it feels like you have two different operating systems that you're trying to set the right foundation for you have your company one that at a foundation level you've decided we want to be a b corp we want to be a force for good and we want to grow in this particular way and then you also somewhat need to figure it out on the technology side too, where it's like, what's our foundation? How will it all work? How is this going to support us when we're 10 times the size that we are now? And if you, and both of them, if you don't do it early, you end up in a bit of a, uh, you know, foggy situation in the future where you're forced to make a lot of hard decisions that have a lot of probably bad business impact and, uh, cause a lot of confusion for everybody involved. So it sounds like you're, you've avoided that trap on both fronts, which is, which is pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. I think investing in, in UX and UX research and, and making sure you're understanding the customer and also that there's no complacency there, that you're always learning, uh, and always listening to them is really key. And I, yeah. I think, as you said, I think really establishing your mission and your vision and your values, uh, 
will lead to people understanding their impact at an individual level. So things like setting what the mission is and then what those values are. We've started using our, our five H's, as we call them, uh, which are our, our five values for not only interview practice, but also kind of like um, performance reviews. Uh, and in situations in which sometimes it's hard to give feedback, having something like that to guide you uh, certainly makes things a lot easier. Uh, and mm -hmm. having uh, people truly understand what their impact is in terms of measures of not only revenue or growth, but what that means in terms of how many small businesses we've enabled or how many carbon offsets we've done and therefore which projects in the, the Amazon or in uh, the Redwood Forest we've been able to support. I think all of those things give true meaning to kind of the day-to-day. -day. Yeah. And I think it's nice because often, often, you know, some, somebody who... Uh, the majority of their day is um, in a task that feels a little bit more repetitive, can really understand the measure of their work uh, through looking at those metrics. And, and those are things that really resonate with people. Uh, and, yeah. and often actually where we're attractive to new candidates more because we're a B Corp than maybe the specifics on what they're, they're doing day to day. Yeah, I think attractive to candidates and also people, it probably gives them an inner... Um, Resilience is too strong a word, but when you're going <laughs> through a period like this year and you're probably having to deal with, you know, as you said, nearly three times probably the amount of volume, uh, when you know it's actually your, your, what your impact on the world is more than just simply sending a parcel, I think that gives people a deeper reservoir of uh, grit to, to you know, persevere and, and stay with the company and make sure they're doing that to the best of their ability. Yeah, I mean, resilience is right and, and, and personal value is right. And I think also autonomy, right? When, when the vision is really clear, decision making is a whole lot easier, right? Because it, it means that uh, you don't need leadership and managers meddling in, in some lower level decisions. Those uh, options and therefore the best solution is really clear when you know what the the end game is i think that's the only way uh organizations can grow is if those values are really clear to everybody in the organization it gives them the framework to make all decisions without always having to go to their boss or their boss's boss to get approval for for something and again back to the foundation thing it seems that's something that you've got right at the early stages that's going to enable you a lot of growth is there one big metric that as an organization you're always trying to push for and that you keep in mind you know a lot of companies call it a big hairy audacious goal or like a, a north star kind of thing that is the ultimate um personification of the impact that you're trying to have it's interesting actually because when we look at our longer term strategy uh there's there's a revenue number there's a small businesses enabled number and then there's a carbon offsets number. And I think it's quite interesting because having all three sort of speaks to the values that might be important to each individual in the team uh, and tracking those mm. has been something we're really working on. And just back to the sense of balancing the three is probably what's making you a healthy organism. I suppose they all... Uh, they all underline one another and they all support one another, right? If our small businesses yeah, do, I think it, they'll send more parcels. And yeah. if they send more parcels, then we'll be offsetting more emissions. So 
uh, they're kind of really deeply connected. Yeah, it comes back to that point you said early where if you're making these decisions that are better for the long term early in your journey, it actually really helps you, whether that's renewable energy or things like this. And if you are willing to incur the cost of doing that at the start, you're going to realize the benefit over your journey and actually end up in a better place. And to your point, I think all those three things reinforce the other and to make them each stronger than they would be without them. So um, I think it's a really interesting business that it, it's not surprising it's it's doing as well as it's doing. I saw you got a huge investment this year that's probably um, reflective of the financial number on on those three numbers that's that's going pretty well. We've we've got uh, quite a few quite a few impact investors as well, and I think um, seeing, seeing sort of the impact that we're making to the world in in that process has been really important, really great for for them as well. Yeah. Well, I think what businesses like yours demonstrate is that I think traditionally people used to view impact investing as a nice to have and almost a cousin to being a non-profit. But I think businesses like yourself and Who Gives a Crap and a bunch of other Australian businesses are really showing that, no, you can actually have a very high profit, high growth business that is having a better impact on the world than businesses traditionally have and like it actually helps us grow faster than we would without you know caring about these causes and having the impact on them that we're that we are having absolutely um and and they just they align so nicely with exactly what our customers are looking for they they want to grow their small businesses they want to learn from other small businesses and they want to do so ethically and sustainably in the process um, so to be, being able to deliver that for them has been, yeah, has been making us pretty proud, I will say. I'm sure. Well, the name of the podcast is Unconventional Business. I think what we're learning as we've been going is that where businesses are thriving is they've taken what used to be considered an unconventional approach with B Corp. I think you're the first one in Australia. So by definition, it was not conventional. Uh, but as we see your success it is actually starting to become more the convention and more how people want to interact with business. They want to make sure they're having that impact. And I think as that happens, you're probably only going to be seeing a lot more success. So I know it's been a good journey so far, but I think probably the best is yet to come. I was hoping. Yes, indeed. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be a fun Christmas, I tell you what. <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting year in general. I think for people in a business like yours, it's an extremely interesting year. So, yeah, best of luck for Christmas and, and thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Unconventional Business by HubSpot. If you liked what you listened to, please subscribe and I'll catch you on the next episode.